0: Okay, friends, pop quiz. What do the internet, handheld GPSs, self-driving cars, UAVs, prosthetics, and, oh yeah, stealth fighters have in common? Well, they all trace their roots to a small, agile, governmental organization known for deep strategic thinking and cutting-edge technologies. But what is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency? Who works there? And why feature them here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast? Well, stay tuned to learn all this and a whole lot more with this week's amazing guest, U.S. Air Force Colonel Daniel Javorsik.
1: At the end of the day, you have to have someone who is investing in that longer range horizon of technology and willing to invest in high-risk type of things if you expect yourself to really enable what DARPA's main mission is, and that is to both create and prevent strategic surprise.
0: the back one on the nose right now okay my sword head north head north hey i'm high cover on you strap in for the fighter pilot podcast the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat the aircraft the weapon systems and most importantly the people now here's your host retired u.s navy fighter pilot vincent Ayello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. In just a few minutes, we will get to our incredible interview on the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is a bit of a mouthful, so we'll simply call it DARPA. Now, I will have some help with a co host coming along shortly, but before then, just a couple quick announcements and listener questions. Now, first, I hope everyone out there is doing well, man. I almost couldn't be better. I just returned from a couple days with a podcast listener and his family. He reached out when I mentioned on a recent episode that I like to fly fish. So he said, Hey, why don't you come on up? And I took him up on the invitation, spent a couple days on the Yuba river, not far from Beale air force base in California and got to know. Brian and Kristen and his family. So big thanks to them and their kids, Hallie, Brogan, and Baylor. Had such a great time with you guys. Thanks for opening up your home to me. I hope we can do it again soon. You know, I tell you what, with families like that, I have renewed hope for America. Now, if we could just get those incessant robocalls reminding us of our car's expiring warranties to stop. Oh, boy. Anyway. All right. Let's see what's going on. Since our intermission episode, we released a bonus audio episode, and then there was a YouTube video accompanying it. It was with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Steve Ladd, and we talked about his book From F-4 Phantoms to A-10 Warthogs. Smokey is one of only a handful of pilots to fly each of those aircraft extensively and he shared what that was like with us and in, in his expertly written book so look for that bonus episode and if you were not one of the three lucky winners of his book then you can still check that out over at fighterpilotpodcast.com look for our shop page and if you buy it through amazon it helps incrementally support the show Now, on the intermission episode that Boat and I had last time, we fielded a question from Kurt regarding a Canadian F/A-18 pilot attending Top Gun. And as I suspected, I was informed since that Captain Chris Schwartz of the Royal Canadian Air Force, who is on exchange with the U.S. Navy, he graduated from Top Gun at the end of 2020. So big congrats to him. And thanks for everyone who pointed that out. And there could even be others, but there's at least one for you. And another thing we discussed was air-to-air missiles being used for ground attack. And it turns out there were several folks who reminded us that in Vietnam, there were cases of F-102 pilots who found they could use the AIM-4 and the F-102's IR seeker to successfully strike enemy trucks and campfires at night. And there was an interesting story about a blue-on-blue against a ship that involved air-to-air missiles. And then in the Arabian Gulf, there was a Canadian CF-18 that uh, tried to employ, although unsuccessful successfully an AIM-7 Sparrow against the ship. So really interesting stuff. You can Google and uh, look for, you know, those stories out there. They're out there. Good stuff. In other news, Paramount announced this past Friday that they are delaying the long-awaited Top Gun sequel, Top Gun Maverick, from July 2nd, 2021 till November. That kind of sucks, but what are you going to do about it? All right. Just a couple quick questions again, before we get to the interview today, the first is an email from Isaac Blackburn who reads, I've been curious regarding the F-35 adoption across the U.S. Marine Corps. The B models have all the attention, but I know that the plan was for a few C squadrons to continue supporting carrier air wings." Now I'll interrupt Isaac's email here real quick to remind you, the listener, that the F-35B is the V-stall variant. Think of the AV-8B Harrier can take off and land vertically. And then the C variant of the F-35 is the carrier variant. It's got bigger wings, more fuel, two uh, nose tires, and a few other things. Anyway, returning to Isaac's email, is this still the plan? And what does that mean for pilot training? Do all F-35 pilots come down the same pipeline and then go in different directions like carrier calls or vertical landings in the B? Is there split training? Isaac, I thought I knew the answer to this, but I asked our friend Chip Burke just to be sure, and he told me what I suspected, which is when you are a Marine aviator who is winged and you are then assigned where you're going to go, you'll either get F-35Bs and you'll go to the appropriate FRS squadrons there in Beaufort, South Carolina, or you will get F-35Cs and you'll go to VFA-125 in Lemoore, California. And then off you go from there to fly either the Bs or the Cs in the fleet. So good question. Good question. All right, next, let's take a phone call.
2: Yeah, hello. This is Alex. I'm calling from Germany. First of all, I wanted to tell you that I really like your show. It's very great to listen to all your stories and those of your colleagues. But what I also wanted to say was what I find very unfortunate is with every show, you feel the need to put the disclaimer there, you know, where you're saying that the views expressed in the show do not necessarily represent the views of whatever department of defense the brass i wanted to say this is very unfortunate i think that you feel the need to do that i guess you're doing it because there are some crazy law firms out there or maybe even you might think the brass might come down on you if you say something they don't like to hear or whatever but i think it's really unfortunate because you and the people you are inviting to your show are the people who are actually flying the airplanes you know I think it's a very sad state of affairs if you people feel the need to cover yourself like that when it should be rather the people listening to you and what you have to say because you are actually flying the airplanes. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. I mean, I get it while you're doing it. My point is you shouldn't have to do it. And maybe if you don't do it, nothing bad will happen either. Anyway, thank you very much for your show and uh, have a nice day.
0: All right, Alex. Well, I appreciate the question and it's a valid one. You know, I agree. I actually don't have to do it. It's just probably a good idea that I do. And maybe it's unfortunate that I feel the need to. And, you know, Alex, I don't know that much about Germany, but the bottom line is in the United States, we are a very litigious society. And the time it takes for me to read that disclaimer each episode is just a small insurance policy in case anyone ever wanted to take issue with anything I or one of my guests or co-hosts say. So, Yeah. I mean, valid point, but now I've probably spent more time talking about why we do it than just doing it every time. And again, it's just a small policy to uh, help us out. All right. Last question is from Jeremy from Indianapolis who says, does the autopilot on a fighter just stay straight and level or can it fly a pre-programmed flight path? Well, Jeremy, on the F-A-18, and also true on the F-35, I learned you can hold an altitude, you can hold a heading, you can hold airspeed, and you can fly to a point. And in the case of the F-18, if you have a sequence of points, you can actually couple the autopilot to fly that sequence. So it's not quite as advanced as my Boeing 757 and 767 that I fly for the airlines, but it's still a decent autopilot that helps you. And frankly, we just call it like pilot relief modes. All right, well, that'll do it for listener questions for this week. Now, as you will hear in a moment, today's feature interview delves into some deep concepts. So I need the help of a co host well versed in that world and could think of no one better than the hero of episode 78 on the Lockheed F 35 Lightning II, now Colonel Tucker Hamilton. Cinco, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jello. What's up, man? Great speaking with you again.
3: <laughs> Dude, I've actually been trying to get a hold of you. Oh? I'll tell you that your warranty on the car has expired. <laughs>
0: very good well hey real quick before we get to the interview you were kind enough to join us uh let's see it was me and a couple dozen patreon supporters for an exclusive zoom chat recently it was live thank you for that but for anyone who didn't make that what's new in your world since we've heard from you gosh 30 episodes ago now
3: yeah man you know uh i guess since our last talk there was that little thing called the coronavirus so no big deal that happened (laughs) yeah no, but for me professionally, yeah, in June I took over as the director of the uh, Department of the Air Force and MIT Artificial Intelligence Accelerator, which has been fascinating, man, to learn about that technology.
0: Oh, I'll bet. Good. All right. And you got promoted to colonel, right? I didn't screw that up?
3: No, I did. Yeah, no, thank you. It's great. I love serving, and we'll continue to serve in this rank until they... Um, tell me to to leave or I find something cooler to do.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Well, so you just threw out artificial intelligence and a bunch of other stuff. And as I said a moment ago, that's exactly why I invited you to be part of this because DARPA, as everyone else will learn in a moment, is an amazing organization. Now you had a chance to preview the interview. Any thoughts before we get to it?
3: It was awesome. I mean, I loved it. I took pages of notes as I was going through because I was basically pounding my fist and being like, yes, yes. So let me give your listeners, real quick, a, a thought. You know, for the first time in my career in this role that I am as uh, the director of this AI accelerator, dude, I'm concerned about our national defense. And it's like I said, the first time in my career that I've really felt this way. And it's simply because we're behind where I think we need to be regarding AI. And AI is a technology that is and will continue to define our entire society. So with that being said, as your listeners enjoy this interview with Animal, which I said was awesome and I did, I thoroughly loved it, I want them to key on a few things like for instance, their own biases towards some of the topics, um, recognizing that those biases are healthy to extent, but they also hinder us since we have to be bold in our approach to this future technology. And I truly believe that our society needs the listeners. Yes, I'm calling on all your listeners because I think our society needs them to adopt a mindset of change. So our paradigm about the use of technology and how we partner with technology, dude, it needs to transform. And there is no better catalyst for this change than listening to this episode.
0: Outstanding. All right. Well, then without further ado, let's hear from Animal, who's the program manager for DARPA's Air Combat Evolution Program, which seeks to automate air-to-air combat and build human trust in AI as a step toward improved human-machine teaming. Here we go. All right, everyone. Today, we're going to learn about the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which I'm excited about because I know they do a lot of cool stuff and here to help us with this pursuit is Colonel Daniel Javorsik, United States Air Force. How's it going, Animal? I'm doing well. How are you, Joe? I'm great, man. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, and I'm really looking forward to learning about your organization because it's just one of those things I've heard a lot about but don't know a lot about.
1: Yeah, you bet. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Cool. Well, hey, before we start with DARPA, let's start with you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school, and uh, what are you doing now?
1: Sure. Uh, You kind of warned me we were going to talk about this, so... uh... Uh, Normally, it's not too difficult to get a fighter pilot to talk about themselves, right? But (laughs) I'm actually from Colorado Springs. My dad was in the Navy during Vietnam, so he was actually on the Coral Sea. And a lot of my decisions career-wise were kind of driven by some of his experiences there. And so, in fact, that's the reason why I went into the Air Force instead of the Navy was because of some of his stuff. But yeah, I uh, ended up going into the Air Force uh, rather uninformed, in fact. You know, sometimes when I talk about these sorts of things with young people, I, I like to recommend stuff like, uh, there's a great book by a buddy of mine, Push Donathorn, called Four Guardians that kind of talks about the different services. And there's just a lot of opportunity out there with the internet and that kind of thing to help advise young people on, on what the different cultures are and the different branches of the military, because that was just something I didn't appreciate before going into this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I went to college at Purdue. In fact, I grew up in Colorado Springs, so you would think that I would have went to the Air Force Academy, which is there, but I delivered mm-hmm. enough pizzas to those guys through high school to recognize that they were pretty unhappy with their lives. It's kind of a long story, but one of those guys told me about there was another option that wasn't as miserable, and I pulled that thread and ended up going to a civilian institution at Purdue. So out of that, I went to pilot training and flew operationally F-16s, and then transitioned into the test world where I flew a handful of stealth fighter airplanes and really focused a lot of my test career on the future of air combat, so F-117s, f 22s, I had the opportunity to fly a prototype and a demonstrator and some of that sort of thing, which is pretty unique experiences. And really out of the frustrations from that, uh, recognizing that I think the sorts of decisions that we were making from an air combat perspective just weren't quite the right ones, I decided to go to DARPA where I thought they would be a little bit more willing to be creative and not just turn the crank from an acquisitions perspective. So yeah, I'm currently a program manager at DARPA with kind of a weird career along the way uh, to get here.
0: Okay. But you went through Air Force Test Pilot School then?
1: I did, yeah, Okay, back in 2007, so it sounds longer and longer ago. I'm getting to be an old guy, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, time marches on. Well, cool. I'm looking forward to how you translated a TPS degree, if you will, into DARPA. So let's start with the basics, though. What is DARPA, and how was it founded?
1: So obviously, I'm not the best guy to be talking about DARPA. (laughs) There are a handful of other folks, and there are several books that are written on it. But I will tell you that whenever I have to kind of give a summary of DARPA and uh, relatively few words, I kind of talk about DARPA as essentially the military's venture capital arm, right? Sometimes they refer to us as kind of the mad scientists of the Department of Defense. At the end of the day, you have to have someone who is investing in that longer range horizon of technology and willing to invest in high risk type of things if you expect yourself to really enable what DARPA's main mission is, and that is to both create and prevent strategic surprise. DARPA stood up in, let's see, 1958. If you do your math right, you look back and you go, Sputnik was launched a year earlier. We were pretty surprised by that. Whether you want to argue whether we should have been surprised by that or not, mm-hmm. you know, when we divvied up the smart folks after World War II between us and the USSR. But yeah, Eisenhower basically stood up the organization in 1958 in response to that Russian launch of Sputnik. At the time, DARPA was originally just called ARPA. It didn't have a D on the front end of it. I would say it was really kind of tasked with finding solutions to these kind of complex defense and national security problems. In the scope of that, there have been a handful of things that you probably, your listeners would recognize that DARPA's had their finger in. You can kind of imagine that when you invest in a lot of different things uh, and you plant seeds in a lot of different places, some of them grow up to be big trees that we rely on every day. And there's a lot that die. <laughs> There are a handful of books that have been written on all of this stuff. If your listeners are really that interested in it, they can kind of go look some of those sorts of things up.
0: Well, this being the Fighter Pilot Podcast and you being a fighter pilot, I figure we can take a look at DARPA through kind of our eyes, if you will, as far as some of the things that apply to air combat, specifically the fighters and all that. But from what I've read, yeah, to your point, they had a D drop the D a few times, but it's DARPA right now. So we'll go with that. You already said it's kind of like the mad scientist role and everything else, but how is it different from other governmental organizations or institutions? It, it seems to me very agile. It looks pretty small from what I can tell too.
1: Yeah, you bet. It is pretty small. I think there's only something like I'm going to get the number wrong, but something like 100 program managers or so. The rest of the organization is kind of there to, at least by design, is there to support those program managers. The probably the biggest unique part of the DARPA experience is that no one is here at DARPA as a guy climbing the corporate ladder, right? It's not like the Department of Defense where you're working your way up in rank or anything like that. You know, people are transient in nature, mm-hmm. and that's kind of by design. I think it's one of the big attributes of the, of the agency is that. People come in, they have a specific idea or a couple of specific ideas. And the goal is that they're going to go try and pursue those with quite a bit of rigor and a lot of support from the organization to go do that. And the way that they abstract off a lot of the risk is that the program managers know that they're not here for the long haul. In fact, most of us are here for a few years. Uh, I think the longest I've seen is someone was here for six years, kind of thing. So you're talking about, think on the military side of things, maybe an assignment or two in duration. And most of us, I mean, I'm, I'm about to leave here this month, actually. So I will have been here for under three years during my tenure, but that's not uncommon to have a two to four to no more than six. And most of it's kind of tied around the technical programs that people come in and run. So they show up, they're passionate about something. Typical DARPA program is, you know, about four years long or so. And so you go, yeah, if you show up, run a program and then watch it transition or die, whichever happens. That's the kind of life cycle that you see with the people. And they pull a lot of people from, you know, as military, only about 10%, 10% of the total PM workforce here, I would say a lot from industry, a lot from academia. And yeah, the whole point is pull someone out that has a passion for something and a fresh set of eyes and is willing to give them the resources that is necessary to pursue that particular task. It's a pretty cool environment.
0: Well, not only pretty cool, but I imagine, but seems to be fairly successful. I mean, you guys have a long track record of different, I don't know what to call it even, but creations, uh, different things that have applied not only to military, but to civilians, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was kind of talking about earlier with planting seeds, right? Mm -hmm. There are a handful of things that I would say people interact with on a regular basis that they don't realize has, is grounded essentially in DARPA technologies. And I, I can kind of list off a handful of them. But at the end of the day, what's oftentimes not well perceived from the outside is a lot of these things that DARPA invests in actually don't see the light of day that don't see that. And that's kind of an important piece of the culture here is that you're willing to invest in a pretty broad swath of technologies because you don't know which ones are really going to take off. You don't know which ones are going to gain traction and which ones are ultimately going to create or prevent that strategic surprise that the agency is based around.
0: Well, give us a few examples. I mean, come on, you can brag a little bit. Did I read correctly? You guys were <laughs> handheld GPS and what, the precursor to what became the Internet?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, those are probably some of the biggest ones. If you go Google DARPA successes, you know, those certainly I, I would say top the list. The internet back in like nineteen sixty-nine, GPS is another of the high points I would say that DARPA likes to claim. You know, I think a lot of people claim inventing these sorts of things, and it kind of gets into it takes more than one person to really create a capability and DARPA has been kind of at the ground floor of a handful of things ones that i would say would maybe be more maybe applicable to this particular audience stealth aircraft if you go look up project harvey and have blue these are like in the uh, mid to to late 1970s it led to f-117s a lot of the precision guided munitions kind of came out of these sorts of programs as well self-driving cars were a big element of DARPA work in the early 2000s, back during what we call the Tony Tether days, when he was the DARPA director. And there's a lot of other stuff from a computer science perspective that people don't realize. Siri, that's on your iPhone, kind of came from a program at DARPA called PAL, a personalized assistant that learns. This is in a 2002-ish timeframe. And then a lot of the unmanned aerial vehicles kind of came out of DARPA in the late 80s, early 90s as well. Probably one of the more interesting ones that for me to find out about when I got here that didn't anticipate was the amazing amount of stuff that happens in the naval domain too, both subsurface and on the surface. In fact, probably the coolest one from my perspective was essentially uh, the sea shadow. If you've seen any pictures of it or go Google it, it looks really kind of, the way I describe it to people is it's like Darth Vader's personal yacht, right? Like (laughs) it is a goofy looking thing (laughs) intended to see what it would look like to try and make a stealth boat and that's an Air Force guy calling it a boat, right? But when you look across the board, DARPA's played in a lot of these different areas. There's a whole bunch of stuff on prosthetics. I won't even try and uh, do justice to the spectrum of stuff that DARPA's been playing in, but they pretty much play across every technological area, and it's pretty fascinating. But, you know, you really could come here, and as a program manager, you end up kind of getting fixated on your particular program and really focused on that. But you can imagine that you could come here and spend your entire time just learning about all the other things that are going on. Yeah. And that's a real rewarding element of the uh, effort here.
0: Yeah, I would think. But hold on, Animal, let me ask you this. So yeah. Have Blue was, as I understand, the beginning of what became the Stealth Fighter. That's right. Lockheed ended up building that, right? So if DARPA came up with the idea for a Stealth Fighter, but Lockheed makes it and makes money on it, is there a transfer there? Of Yeah,
1: DARPA didn't really come up with the idea for the Stealth Fighter, right? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, the way programs in general work, and that's probably an important distinction to make, I don't know how much your users pay attention to this stuff, but when the Department of Defense usually acquires a system, we write a requirement for it, right? Okay. So we say, we want to acquire an airplane, it needs to go this high, this fast, go fly for this long, and carry this much stuff, right? That's a request for proposal. It's basically a very requirements-driven process. DARPA doesn't work on that same process, and that's kind of by design that process that the Department of Defense uses for acquisitions is really fundamentally wrapped around the idea that we know what we want and we know what we need. One of the fallacies of that is that when you're doing research, you really need to not specify that, right? If you want the creatives to really get after it, you don't tell them, I need an airplane that can do XYZ thing. What you do is you say, I need to create this kind of an effect. And in the case of Project Harvey, if you go look it up, it wasn't, I need to have an airplane with a radar cross-section of XYZ. It was like, could I do this? Could I escape from radar? And there's a handful of stuff that was coming out of the 40s. Go look up the Germans back in World War II, had an HO229, which was basically designed to... So the idea that we wanted to try and make ourselves more difficult to detect is not something that's new. I mean, nature does it all the time. Just look at moths and camouflage in nature and you see that it's all around us, right? So none, none of that piece is really that new. It's that in the DARPA side of things, they basically said, we want to kind of go do this And we don't really know how. So we're going to do, instead of a requirements-driven process, we offer up a challenge. In a sense, challenge has a special word, so I got to probably avoid saying the challenge, but we offer up a problem. Mm -hmm. And we say, how would you, as a performer, the industrial base, the uh, universities, the labs, how would you guys solve that particular problem? And as a result, When we get proposals back for one of these, we call them BAAs, broad agency announcement. I think I've got that right. Someone can correct me later, Google it. But we release these BAAs, these announcements that simply say, we have a problem, we want solutions to it. And we get a whole host of different answers back. And the benefit of that is that because everyone's unique and different, we don't really grade them against each other. We grade them of which one do I think will get me to the solution the best? And how do I build a program around diversity of getting to there. So on all of my efforts, I always select more than one performer. It's more than one contractor. I deliberately accept contractors that have very different approaches because I want to compete those approaches against each other. And that's just not the way the traditional requirements process works. And I think that flexibility allows us to kind of stay focused on research and development, allows us to stay creative throughout the process and really then throughout the program, any program, you normally hone in on the one that seems to be bearing the greatest fruit. Gotcha. And that's kind of generically how these programs work. Okay. And so in the case of the Have Blue to tie that full circle is that they basically said, hey, we want to kind of go hide from radar, tell us ideas of how to do it. In fact, Lockheed wasn't a part of the original, the Skunkworks guys weren't part of the original Project Harvey. They got wind of it because of some work they were doing with the CIA. And they were like, hey, we should put in for this. And I think Ben Rich or one of those guys basically tapped somebody on the shoulder and said, we should get added to this effort. And lo and behold, they ended up taking the whole thing and really building an entire industry around that. Right.
0: And that jives with our F-117 episode where our guests said that very same thing. So the point of my poorly worded question earlier, Animal. So in other words, it's not like you guys in your monster garage came up with, hey, check this out. This could ultimately be a stealth fighter. Here you go, Lockheed. Why don't you guys go take this and build it and fly it and sell it? And like you just said, build a whole industry around it. It's more like, hey, we have this crazy idea. Let's hear your suggestions for how to answer it.
1: That's right. And there are a lot of times when that crazy idea turns out to not have any good solutions to it. And when that happens, you kind of table that one Mm -hmm. and you say, maybe in 10 years, we'll come look at this again. Maybe the technology will be mature enough to give us better guidance on how to solve that particular problem.
0: And that's a great question or a point you make, actually, because I wanted to ask you the question of, in your world, failure, quote unquote, right? We all think of failure as such a negative thing, but if something doesn't work, do you guys count that as a failure? Is failure a bad word where you guys are? Or, or how would you define some of the things you go
1: after, but nothing ever comes of it? The semantics of that, naturally, failure is very pejorative. A different way of looking at that is that maybe the timing's not quite right for this. And one of the things that I've encountered on my programs, for example, is There is a reluctance to adopt disruptive technologies by the user base, right? And when you look at what DARPA kind of calls a successful program, right, is they oftentimes tie that metric, that term success, to whether you transition an an effort or whether you transition it to the services. You know, you got to be kind of careful tying the success of an effort to the transition because there are definitely times when the technology gets out in front of the people that are needed to adopt it. And in fact, you know, one of the programs that I kind of started while I was here was specifically that. I felt rather confident that the technology was ahead of, I would say, the culture. And part of the program was really framed more around, not more, but equally around the culture and trying to break down that cultural resistance as well as co-evolve the tactics with the technology. There's just an inherent reluctance of, I would say the user base, regardless of what it is to adopt something that is new and being introduced. And you can kind of imagine oftentimes disruptive emerging technologies are inherently threatening to the people that it's designed to help. And so it's kind of this weird relationship where exactly the people you're trying to help are the ones that don't want to actually accept the technology. And there's a lot of psychology that kind of goes into that, right? Of Mm -hmm. when you think about it, any one of these it often is kind of challenging to the things that those intangibles or those incalculable things and what i mean by that is if you to become a hornet guy you had to do certain tasks and those certain tasks led to your success as a uh, hornet pilot and those tasks are what weeded out the other guys that maybe weren't quite able to meet the grade if i start introducing technology that was what made you unique and what made you special what I'm effectively doing is, I'm attacking the heritage and the culture of the people that I'm trying to help in a way, or at least it has the potential to look threatening in that particular way. Right. And so there's a huge element, especially when it comes to like autonomy in air combat operations and in air combat vehicles, that we've been very reluctant adopters. We as fighter pilots, we haven't jumped on the bandwagon with a lot of this unmanned system stuff, even though it's, you know, really better for us. I mean, when you really think about it, It makes it safer for us. We return home more frequently to our families and our kids, but it also kind of attacks that underlying thread that got you interested in it to begin with, right? right. And there's an interesting interplay there that we're seeing play out. I think when you start a program, in my particular case, I started a program that was specifically in this particular area, you find that the way that you tackle that is very different than if I was coming at this from an engineering-only perspective. That's probably the benefit of clowns like me who have this very heavy science background as well as the operator flying piece is that some of these things are pretty self-evident that maybe just aren't self-evident to other people.
0: No, that makes sense though, Animal. One of the analogies I use often on this show is some of the advancements in vehicles, right? So you've got analog brakes, you've got oversteering protection. And in the old days, if you just had a very basic race car, well, the difference between a winner and the guy who finishes last on the grid is the winner's ability to manage the throttle and slidings, you know, all those different things. But now if you have all those technology implementations and it makes a poorer driver better or it neuters the better driver's skills, then you've, like you said, kind of taken away a little bit from the folks that have that natural ability. Is that a fair example?
1: Absolutely. And I think to kind of pull that thread a little bit more, if you look at the difference between F1 Formula One and stock car racing and NASCAR, right, right? You see that they're two fundamentally different frameworks that maybe people don't really appreciate. You know, in the stock car piece, it's, hey, we all have the same car. We got the same mechanics. They go to great lengths to make them the same so that it is driver skill that leads to a successful outcome, right? If you look at Formula One, it's exactly the opposite, right? I want to make it so a monkey can drive this car and win the race. So they do all kinds of really fancy things and they have no control, very little control on uh, that piece and it's a very heavily engineering like how can we design this thing so that you know my third grade kid can win the race i'm (laughs) sure i'm going to get some hate mail from the formula one guys but you kind of get the gist of it is it all kind of depends on your objective what your outcome is if you're trying to shoot for that skill piece then yes the stock car racing is the way to go if you're trying to really tease out true performance from the vehicle itself you're going to go down a formula one part and when you look at the application of this to air combat for example. You go, which of those camps do you want to be in? And I will say that a lot of our existing and my um, age group and above really relied very heavily on thinking that this is a stock car race, right? And that it's my intuition and skill as a pilot that's leading to our overall advantage. And you know that's kind of opposite from what the way our engineers look at this, right? Our engineers are saying, hey, I want to take the pilot out of this as much as I can. I want to be more successful and squeak every element out of my machine from a technological perspective. And, you know, when those two cultures clash, which is essentially what happens in a lot of the unmanned, you know, think, just roll back the last 20, 30 years. And you say, what did the pilot community do when introduced to all this autonomy? They didn't, weren't like embracing it with open <laughs> bear hugs, right? <laughs> uh, they true. were stiff arming it as much as they could. And it's just because fundamentally, they look at it in a different way. They're human beings, right? And they're, proud of what they accomplished and how they got there, and you're starting to take away some of those elements. I will say I've flown light civil airplanes that were built in the 70s that have better autopilots on them than the (laughs) F-22. Well, so it's kind of scary, but that's the way it is.
0: I think back to my existence as a naval aviator, it used to be that certain aircraft didn't have heads-up displays. And so when the F-18 came along, there was all this ribbing about, oh, it must be so easy to land on the carrier now because you have this heads-up display. Well, now they have this precision approach landing system, which used to be called, I guess, magic magic carpet. Exactly. And so now that's so good that they're thinking about not even sending flight students to the boat for the first time. And so then, of course, the question is, we used to turn off our HUD every once in a while on practice landings, not at the ship, of course, but at the field, just in case it went away. And it never did. I mean, I flew over 3,000 hours in F-18, 705 carrier landings, and I had my HUD for every single one of them.
1: I like how you know the exact number of landings (laughs) that you've got, but that's the point is that this culture that we are working in is Mm -hmm. it uses these metrics and it uses these sorts of things because they are indicative of your skill, right? right. And I'm not trying to throw that back at you, but that's the point is that we have a entire culture of fighter pilots that use these kinds of things as metrics. And if you start introducing magic carpet or any other autonomy that was taking away that metric, you got to be careful with that, right? Yeah. How do I get the human beings that this is intended to replace? How do I bring them along and get them to see that this is really intended to empower them, right? To enable us to, right. to not focus on a particular skill set that may be becoming obsolete and really focus more on elevating them to what we really care about. You know, you didn't fly the Hornet to land on the carrier. That was an artifact of where you needed to just get the airplane to where it needed to be. Cause what we really wanted you to do was all that like combat ops stuff and battle management piece. That's right. And if we can elevate you in that category, then you're a lot better resource for us. You know, there's a whole element behind this, that when you look at your training and mine too, we spent an awful lot of time training our fingers and not training our brains. And when you look at how much time and energy and resources are spent on that, if we can have some autonomous system that helps us focus us on what is uniquely human, trying to outthink our adversary and that sort of thing, then we should all be really jazzed about that. But what we find or what I've found is that a lot of the metrics that we use to evaluate ourselves and take pride in are the buttons and the fingers part, not so much the mind's element.
0: That's a good point you make. All right. So we've talked about handheld GPS and the internet. Then, of course, we've talked about the F-117. What are some other greatest hits, if you can, of uh, some of the air combat stuff? For example, I think I remember watching a TV show once about a laser they had mounted on the front of a 747 just to see if aerial (laughs) lasers could be a thing or not. But what else can you share with us? Either successes or, you know, quote unquote failures, but maybe
1: the time just wasn't ready yet. Yeah. So naturally, DARPA works in a space that, because it's tied to national security and, and national defense, if you're in the business of preventing surprise and creating surprise, then going on to a podcast and broadcasting everything that you're about to do is not a really great way to preserve your strategic surprise. So you can imagine that your viewers or listeners can imagine that in the background, there's a handful of stuff that's, I think, pretty important that we preserve that advantage. And so there is a shroud of secrecy around the organization and that's by design. Of course. But I think at the end of the day, there are a handful of things that are, I would say, coming out of the computer science world that are allowing us, and this was one of my reasons for going to DARPA to begin with, is my previous life, I found that it really seemed like we were Pavlov's dog. And what I mean by that is we'd been kind of conditioned over the last several decades, probably last couple of generations, that the way that we solved new problems was, We produce a new airplane. That new airplane has some new features. It goes higher, faster, farther. And we're just going to rinse, lather, repeat, and do this over and over again. And and in the 1970s or so, we started really tightly coupling with what we thought our threat was. Back before 1975, it took us about, on average, about five years to go from uh, contract-like release to the actual operational capability of a platform. From an air combat perspective, think of a lot of this stuff in Vietnam coming out of Vietnam, even F-16s, F-15s, F-18s, had pretty quick turnaround time. You just go look at the dates from what we call RFP, request for proposal, to initial operating capability. But once we started adding a lot of this complexity of the mission system stuff on it, what we found is that the timeline to get to IOC was just grossly exaggerated. In fact, there's a 1984, if you go Google Augustine's sixteen law, I think he was a deputy secretary of the army or something. He made a series of laws where he made kind of these tongue in cheek predictions. And one of them that was tied to air combat back then was he said, hey, if you, what he did is he took the cost of an airplane in 1984 and he took the historical cost of airplanes. And he said, I'm going to extrapolate that and just extrapolate that line based on all these other aircraft. And then I'm going to extrapolate the defense budget line and I'm going to watch where those two lines intersect. And on his chart, those lines intersected in 2054, in which case he then wrote his 16th law, which was basically, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here, but by 2054, the Department of Defense will be able to afford one airplane with the entire defense budget. It will be flown three and a half days by the Air Force, three and a half days by the Navy, and the Marine Corps will get to use it every other leap year. And his kind of whole point with that was that this is kind of getting absurd. And this is in 1984. If you take his plot from 1984 and you put the F22 and the F35 they pretty much fall on that line. You know, I was fortunate as a test pilot to be part of, you know, what comes next after fifth gen aircraft. I started looking at this and same kind of feeling of like what are we doing guys? Why do we continue to think that Pavlov's dog has been conditioned that this is just the way that you solve these particular problems. And in an absence of peer adversary, right? Once the Soviet Union fell, we kind of were a little bit lost, I would say. We didn't have a market pressure to change this. And so it just kind of got progressively worse. You know, the F-22, which I love as an airplane, it's an absolute joy to fly. But, you know, when we got it in IOC in 2005, it was designed against the Soviet Union of 1985. Well, the world had changed a lot in those 20 years, right? That changing world meant that, especially without a peer-level adversary, meant that we really weren't ready to handle this adaptability component. And we have gotten kind of lazy, I would say. And in my particular case, I wanted to go to DARPA because I'd probably made enough enemies in the test world by being a naysayer that this is not the right way to go. Coming to DARPA gave me an opportunity to say, well, what is the way that we get these timescales a little bit back on our side? What is a way that I could take existing stuff and start thinking about using it in new ways? Because that's the way that we really adapt in our warfighters today. We use human brain power to solve that problem. And there are there ways to add technology to it. So I think when you look at a lot of artificial intelligence stuff, that's been obviously in the media a lot, Mm -hmm. DARPA has been on the ground floor of pretty much all of that from the very beginning. We're just now in the last decade starting to truly see some payoffs in that piece. And so I deliberately started some work on how do I build trust in this kind of a entity that goes to battle with me, right? Because when I'm doing AI on cat pictures on the internet, the consequences aren't very high. But if you say, I'm going to try and have some system like this help me make decisions when there are big consequences in it, how do I retain the legal, moral, and ethical oversight of that while also keeping myself or my fellow pilots safe as they go forward? And it really comes down to trust. Like, How do I build trust in these sorts of systems?
0: Well, and I definitely want to ask you about the AI stuff, Animal. But before we move on, as you and I are recording this at the beginning of March, the Air Force Chief of Staff, General Brown, just made a comment recently. It was in the news about some people interpreted it as discouraging the F-35. That's not the word I want, but you get the point. And he intimated <laughs> yeah. the idea of possibly buying more of something else, a simpler fighter, perhaps. Is that along the lines of what you're talking about? And, and what do you think of his idea? Disparaging, I think, is the word I want to...
1: Yeah. His comments that made it into the media also were noticed in a variety of different other circles as well, right? I'm sure. I won't try and put words into his mouth by any stretch of the imagination, but I will say that one of the things that we have, this is the world according to animal, not the official policy or position of the Department of Defense to the U.S. government or DARPA. (laughs) Standard disclaimer.
0: Oh, I do every episode, so you're
1: good. (laughs) (laughs) I think the big picture is that we clearly can't stay on that Augustine 16th law thing that I was talking about. You got to do something right. different. The industrial base that we have has been conditioned around that old one. So how do we get it so that Pavlov gets a new trick, right? And I think what General Brown might be trying to touch on, or at least if my interpretation of it is that we don't necessarily need to just continue to turn the crank, and get more of what we had before. Where I would be taking it if I were the one making some of those sorts of decisions is I would be looking for knees in the curve. And what I mean by that is in any technology, there's usually not a linear progression with the improvement of what it is, right? Once you discover that there's a new technology opportunity, there's a really sharp learning curve associated with that, where you get a really steep return on that particular investment. And then usually you kind of approach a point where you start saturating the market or kind of recuperated all of those big gains early on And the curve starts to tip back over and you get into this area of the law of diminishing returns where I make an incremental improvement and it costs me a lot to get that incremental improvement. And what you find on all of our aircraft, all of our fighter aircraft, for example, is that we've been so far beyond the knee in that curve. It's not even funny. And that's part of the reason why the cost and the time has taken so long and has been so expensive to get there is that we are in that law of diminishing returns. The F one seventeen remarkable number of the time frame that it took to go from RFP to IOC. We're in that five-ish year time frame, And you go, how did we go from an F-117, which was able to do all these stealthy types of things, maybe not quite the maneuverability piece, but it was able to do all of these sorts of things. And we did that in five years. And the F-22 took us 20 and the F-35, 26 or whatever the number is. I, I Don't quote me on it. The, the idea is, is that you go, we're clearly on the tail end of this. And that's because our industrial base has been conditioned to hang out and they've been rewarded for hanging out in this law of diminishing returns piece. And if I were gonna interpret General Brown's comments, I would say, how do we get back to the knee in the curve? And if we can get ourselves back to the knee in the curve, now, instead of investing all of our funding and all of our time and resources on getting another couple of dB or uh, decibels out of the radar cross section, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of doing that, why don't we spend our time finding all of the knees in the curve, what you find, I taught a low observables course for many years out at Edwards Air Force Base because I found a just a massive misperception in how much you get out of just shaping a vehicle, for example. You get it in any low observables basics course or there's a great book by Not Schaefer & Thule that covers all of these sorts of things. But the point is, is that how do I get a vehicle that gets me all of the bang for the buck of being on the, the steep learning curve but without all of the investment in the tail, it's really costly because I'd rather take that money and time and those resources and apply them to another knee in the curve and another knee in the curve so that ideally we design a platform that hits all the knees. And now that's the most capable system because when I when I overfocus on, say, radar cross-section, which is kind of what we've done over the last several decades, I leave myself open to a challenger. David doesn't go after Goliath by choosing to fight him with a sword, right? He goes after something different. And when you look at China or you look at Russia or any of our adversaries, you say they see the trillions of dollars of investment in a particular technology area. And you better imagine that as a challenger, they're going to be looking for ways around it. So if you're spending all this resource and time going over at that little Bob diminishing return piece, you can expect your challengers looking for an, an orthogonal entry. And that's what we're trying to tackle here at DARPA. And I would say in General Brown's case, those might be some of the sorts of things that he's trying to track us toward. Sure. Naturally, it'd be unpopular though, right? (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) Well, and open to interpretation by people who want catchy headlines. Getting back to DARPA, are there allied equivalents? Do you guys share notes or foreign officers with anyone from the Brits or the Aussies or anyone else?
1: I haven't really seen that. I know that Victoria, the previous DARPA director, had started some initiatives along those lines, You'd have to go Google it. I'm not really well postured to be able to speak on behalf of those efforts, but and maybe she didn't. Maybe I just saw some headlines that some other countries were trying to look to work this model, because you can imagine that this model is one that would be pretty beneficial mm-hmm. to have an agency that can go, have a little bit more flexibility, willingness to take risk. That's probably the biggest piece is the willingness to accept and take risk. And in all honesty, we at DARPA could do a better job of that too. Yeah. You know, there's a very strong pull and incentive to just become more like the engine that we are trying to aid. I mean, that's pretty, I would say, common with almost any big organization, whether it's Kodak or Blockbuster. You know, an unwillingness to take in a system that allows you to continue to innovate is pretty tough. DARPA is that innovation cell, but there's a pretty strong incentive to try and pull it back into the mothership of DOD.
0: Well, earlier you definitely sidestepped my question about uh, 747 laser beams, and I'm a little disappointed, but... at any rate, we'll... Uh... There's
1: not a whole lot we can get into with <laughs> technology without getting no, myself to get me in trouble.
0: On that note, what can we talk about that you guys are doing today? And if we need to just jump on the AI bandwagon here, of course, as you said, about a year ago, that was all over the headlines. And me with my podcast, I had many listeners write me, oh, what do you think about the fact that this uh, human pilot lost all five times? And I guess I would ask your thoughts on that overall, I don't even know what to call it, the contest you guys had, but what's the future for air combat when it comes to AI?
1: Probably one of the things that, you know, whenever you do something like that, you look back and you go, hindsight being what it is, it got hyped pretty heavily of human versus machine. Yeah, And I kind of saw that happening as it was happening, but just couldn't really correct it very well. You know, ultimately our goal with that particular effort is not the human versus machine, but rather human with machine. How do I get these sorts of systems into the fight with me in a way that they elevate my performance. And really, there are a whole host of complicating factors when you start saying, well, I'm going to have a wingman who has air-to-air missiles. They have to deal with clear avenue fire and the uncertainties and dynamics of the real high-end fight. And you start going, that's a pretty tough problem to solve. And that's what we're really trying to get after on the effort itself. I think moving forward, one of the things that you'll find is that there is a remarkable amount of latent capacity within our entire warfighting system that has not really been exploited or unlocked. And it won't really take these billions and billions of investment to move forward, in my opinion. We've gotta get ourselves past this confusion between something that's familiar with something that's intuitive. You know, just look at your Hornet, what did your engine display look like and how different was it than a P-51? You'll probably find that it looked an awful lot the same, right? And you go, all we did was in the Raptor, for example, the F-22, all we did was take a P-51 display and make it digital. We didn't really take advantage of the medium, that digital medium, what that has to offer. You know, in cases like that, we have a remarkable amount of untapped potential in the systems that we have. And that's where I think some of General Brown's type of stuff, if you just said, let's go and unlock the potential in these existing systems, you may find just a tremendous capacity for amazing things that doesn't require building something brand new, right? And I think the AI element is one thing that's shown potential in that regard, but imagine it at so much more than just that dogfighting thing, which most of us really don't care that much about. When it comes to the command and control, when it comes to making these very big strategic decisions with massive numbers of vehicles and entities that can create effects from a variety of different domains, you find yourself a really complicated problem that we as humans just don't distill that kind of thing very well. And so it's an area that is ripe for a technological investment and assistance. I think if you kind of kept your eye on that, most people would see that there's a tremendous amount of potential there.
0: Could you call it instead of potential, a slippery slope?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: So for example, in the old days, right, you had to leave the cave go out and club something and bring it back and cook it and eat it. These days, Uber Eats will bring food right to your door. So we don't have to get our (laughs) own food. Pretty soon, we're going to have machines doing our fighting. What does this mean for humanity?
1: Yeah, so that's not an uncommon threat theme, right? Not an uncommon threat. If you look at it, you know, if you kind of break it into, we have four ages of humanity that we are operating as a backdrop for our history, right? The first one was this hunter-gatherer era, right? And in the hunter-gatherer era, lasted for millennia, right? we figured out agriculture and we started the agricultural era. And in the agricultural era, it lasted for a few thousand years. And then we kind of got into the industrial revolution, right? And we mm-hmm. say, well, that lasted for a few hundred years. And now we are in this information age, if you want to call it that. And that's lasted maybe for a couple of decades. But I guess the moral of this, we giving you this history lesson is that the hunter gatherer, the one clubbing the piece of meat and bringing it back to the family, dude, that reason why that took millennia, to get us out of that is that we had no spare capacity to try and think of, you know, Mozart type of stuff or fancy things that would allow us to really unlock the creativity that's locked into the gray matter between everybody's ears. And so, as we offload some of these more mundane tasks, it's really provided us the opportunity to expand ourselves as a species. If you look at the 20th century, we really unlocked two massive things that are we're sitting on a landmine with both of them. That is nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, and biotech. Think of DNA and our ability to kind of edit and change our source code, right? And when you look at that, you go, man, we are essentially gods because we're able to completely control these sorts of things, but we don't really have the wisdom to do that, right? Our wisdom is lacking right now. And it's kind of amazing, actually, that neither of those have really blown out of proportion. The fascinating piece is how do we as humans manage the amazing amount of capacity that we've unlocked in the 20th century without destroying ourselves along the way. And obviously that's way beyond the fighter pilot podcast probably (laughs) and much better done over a couple of beers, right? But you kind of get the idea that I think on these AI sorts of things, we are certainly tackling with some important questions when it comes to ethics. And as we get ourselves farther and farther away from some of these dirty tasks, it's kind of important to always retain what are the psychological effects of that and what are the implications of us being more and more separated because you find yourself in a 20 plus year war with an adversary and people are just hanging out at the mall as if nothing's going on. It's not like it was in World War II. It's not like it was in Vietnam where the entire country had a very good sense that they were at war. And so that abstraction and that distance from the dirty work is something that is way beyond the sort of thing that you and I are going to solve, but keep a track of. And that's why all of my programs, we really have a heavy emphasis on retaining the human on the loop so that that doesn't get out of control. All
0: right. So you wouldn't talk too much about some of the other stuff you guys have done. You're only going to talk about AI, what you are doing. Are you able to speculate at all on some future projects DARPA might be interested in?
1: That's another tough one, right? Predicting (laughs) the future turns out to be a difficult pastime. And although there's plenty of Mm -hmm. opportunity for the doomsday type of predictions, if I had the corner market on that, I probably wouldn't be spending time talking to you. I'd be playing the (laughs) stock market or something. Yeah. I think the moral of the story is, is I suspect that DARPA is doing a fantastic job of keeping uh, new blood into the system because of the way that it's architected. Like we talked about before, there are a lot of these 30 year science experiments that have always been 30 years away, whether it's with regard to, you were leaning into lasers there earlier, the airborne laser. Yeah, lasers have been promised, I think, since their invention to completely revolutionize things. And yet still we have, you know, one of the things that I would say, what I've found throughout my career is that there's really no shortage of people with ideas about jetpacks, but there certainly is a shortage of actual jetpacks. We're not lacking Mm -hmm. in creativity. We're not lacking in people willing to think outside the box and challenge the status quo what we are lacking in is a mechanism by which we can turn lots of those opportunities into something real. And that's because we have not had a challenger. We've been the hegemon for the planet for the last, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's been damaging to us. If you wanna look at kind of just big picture, we talk about China, for example, is this big evil and angry thing, but I will tell you that strife certainly forces an awful lot of ingenuity to come to fruition. I think there's something healthy to our industrial base as well as our defense department to have an adversary that is well-defined and that is legitimately challenging us because it forces us to think about things too. Maybe not the way I probably should end on all this, but but you kind of get the gist of it, right?
0: Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Animal. This is a th- thought I just had that I didn't warn you. I was going to ask you a lot of news lately about the Pentagon opening up some investigations in the UFOs. And of course, even on my show, we had Commander Fravor talk about the Tic Tac. Are you willing <laughs> to speculate at all on what Navy and Air Force pilots are starting to report more and more out there?
1: <laughs> <laughs> a nice loaded question. I probably shouldn't be surprised, but I get plenty at, at Thanksgiving dinner from sure. in-laws and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think if you kind of back yourself up and say there's an awful lot that we don't really understand about a handful of these things, you're probably in a safer spot. If you want me to say, oh, UFOs are here and we got all these aliens running around and stuff like that, it's not going to happen, right? But I would say as our sensors improve, as we get more and more information, we are a little bit more susceptible to not really accurately perceiving and interpreting our information. And that's not me just going down the path of like, oh, it's a weather balloon kind of standard answer, Mm -hmm. but rather that. Yeah. I mean, the name kind of has it baked into it. It's unidentified. There's a handful of stuff. I mean, I'm sure you've right. flown around when you were flying. You were like, uh, what the hell is that? I don't know. You don't have time to investigate it and you don't really know what's actually going on. That's basically what a lot of this stuff is. Yeah. I think jumping to the conclusion that it's intelligent life from another planet here to probe people from <laughs> Arkansas is probably a bit of a jump, but most of these sorts of things can typically be yeah. described in the span of real things. But I think when you lose that curiosity and you lose that willingness to investigate, that's probably the biggest thing that's been damaging to that field is once it gets a stigma of a uh, tinfoil hat people, I'm going to avoid it. Now we don't look at it with the level of rigor that we do every other problem. You know, the scientist in me basically says the scientific method pretty much applies to anything. We shouldn't hold off on some of these topic areas just because they're uncomfortable.
0: Well, when it comes right down to it, someone as sober and wise and clear-headed as uh, Commander Fravor, who I know personally, and I have no reason to doubt the veracity of his story, when he talks about an aircraft, or I shouldn't call it an aircraft, something in the sky that's maneuvering like nothing he's ever seen before, and it causes me to question, okay, I've, I've never really thought that hard about it before, but when people press me on it, I come down and I say, look, it could either be from outer space, or it's something that's Here, that we just don't know about, that's not been disclosed to us. And I lean towards the latter. And I'm not saying you should take a vote here, but how would you uh, feel about me saying it's more likely something we just don't know about versus something from outer space?
1: Absolutely. That's exactly where I weigh in on. I would say that oftentimes, even when we say, oh, well, that was a Hornet pilot, you know, that's a highly trained individual. Yeah, sure. But how many astronomers were noticing this stuff? Those guys spend their entire time staring at the sky, right? How many digital processor folks picked up on that particular image or whatever? And the point is, is that usually where these kind of confusion pops up is, I would say, is when you have somebody from a different community or with a different background who happens to be in the environment and notices something that's interesting. And there's nothing wrong with that particular piece. But if you really want to do diligence on this, you really need to make sure that you're polling the appropriate folks. And to my mother-in-law or my relatives, you know, an F-18 pilot who sees something might seem like an extremely credible source. And it is. It's I'm not trying to say that he didn't see what he saw. I think that there are a lot of explanations for a lot of things. And our brains are just go read Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman or any of these kind of pop culture psychology things. And you recognize that we as humans have kind of been conditioned over millennia to find relationships out in noisy environments, not because the relationship actually exists, but because it is advantageous for us to do so. And so if you've seen uh, Office Space, that jump to conclusions map thing, right? Your brain is a engine that fires off this jump to conclusions engine that oftentimes can be tricked, right? That's why magic works. That's why optical illusions and these sorts of things work is that you rely on these heuristics baked into your psychology and you just got to be really careful that when you do see something weird that it's not some aspect of that. So I'm not saying it can't happen and none of these things are out there, but you do have to put some pretty hearty thought into it. And I think it's okay to, embrace some of the mystery, right? Because when there's no mystery in life and there's oh, and you lose the curiosity and we get plenty of that baked out of us when we're kids, right? Think of that's right. the two-year-old that splashes in the puddle and their mom's like, no, no, don't make a mess. You're like, that's a little scientist running around. You're just scaring the scientists out of them. So let's embrace more of that. Yeah. Opinion. There you go. Here, here.
0: All right. Well, you've been a good sport animal. I want to wrap up with a few listener questions real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Shoot. Okay, so Kevin Flynn wants to know, why did the AI in the alpha dogfight competition choose to go for face shots so much?
1: Yeah, no, that's a um, legitimate question. And in fact, that's something that we saw developing over time. It took those face shots because it could. So we didn't rule them out. We didn't put training rules into the system, mainly because I wanted to make it simple for the guys. You know, it was hard enough just getting the code to run and stuff like that. So I Mm. tried to limit the number of restrictions that were placed on them. And narrow AI algorithms do their job quite well, and that's what all of these ones did as well. They found that if they could get their fine tracking algorithm working properly, um, and we didn't have bullet droop and any of this other stuff, so it's kind of like a laser gun was the scenario that we gave them. Okay. Once they realized it was good enough to be able to create that effect, then yeah, they were exploiting the info tactics space. And one of those tactics was to pure pursuit and try and take a high aspect shot. You know, most of us humans don't try that for a variety of reasons. One, it's usually a safety concern because you're pure pursuit in the guy. And like right. face shots, we have 135 degree aspect on the gun, uh, TR 11214 limitation in the Air Force. Part of it is also that that's not really what I'm trying to condition my pilots to do. I don't want them taking these kind of crazy shots that are really risky. I'm trying to teach them a behavior of how do I find a position where I can maneuver to follow on objectives? Because uh, naturally, we're not trying to teach them just to do BFM or basic fighter maneuvers. We're trying to teach them to work as a team when we're collaborating. And if you're doing stuff like that, it's a lot harder for me to see how the team's going to prosecute a a more complicated attack. So I think what the AI did was it found a part of the strategy space and a tactic space that was highly effective, especially given the way that we built our, our mechanism and our scoring and all that kind of stuff. And Once I saw it happening, I was like, well, I don't want them to start over from scratch. They're doing exactly that. And the teaching point there is that one of the things that these AI approaches allow us to do, especially in modeling and simulation, is explore parts of the strategy space that we would not otherwise be able to do with our our humans. I would never let a young wingman go out and do that kind of stuff. So, what ends up happening is we have strategies and tactics that are just completely off limits to us. And if we can get an AI agent that can play the game well enough, It can actually help us explore strategies. You know, when you look at these AIs that play video games, there are a massive number of people that watch that. You're like, are there really that many people that watch video games and AI playing video games? Like, there aren't really that many AI researchers on the planet. You go, no, they watch it because they want to find some new, clever technique that they can use to beat up on their buddy. And if you think (laughs) about the AI in Alpha Dogfight that we did last summer doing the same thing, then you bet. I want to let the AI play all kinds of things without the safety restrictions. So I say, oh, there's an overwhelming advantage if we only adjust our training or enable us to maybe unlock a war reserve mode in the way that we execute, because we know that it's going to have an overwhelming impact in the future. And you just can't yeah. do that with humans alone.
0: So as a follow-up to that, and this is my question, not Kevin's, how far are we from a rematch, but in real life? Because I would argue on behalf of the humans, there's only so much you can do in a simulator when you don't feel the aircraft. Are we anywhere near that in the next couple of years of a test?
1: Yeah. So the teams have moved into the team dogfighting and and modeling and simulation. Over the last year, we've been modifying an airplane, the first of what will end up being four airplanes that go at it in the real world. Timeline-wise, we're going to probably start moving into subscale aircraft to test the algorithms later this year, Uh end of 21 into 22, the actual aircraft that the AI algorithms are going on, there'll probably be two L-39s and probably two F-16s for a mixed multi-MDS formation teams that kind of go against each other. So, you know, can imagine an L-39 F-16 pairing against another L-39 F-16 pairing in, in a team exercise that right now we're targeting late 2023, early 2024, you'll see this hmm. happening for real. And in that one, obviously we'll have all the safety Regards. You won't see any high aspect face shots and that kind of thing, but you will see them working together as a team with an unmanned wingman to handle all the sorts of challenges associated with the real world.
0: But that's an interesting point you made, Animal, because if the AI doesn't care, right? The AI is just a machine, and and I'm going to assume I don't know that much about it, but it doesn't care if it lives or dies. But the human does. Is the human already at a disadvantage? Because if I'm out there fighting a machine, I'm not going to want to collide with it, but it may not care if it collides with me.
1: The first one is, is that you got to ask yourself, what makes you say that the AI doesn't care? You know, we're anthropomorphizing this sort of thing. The answer is, is that we can bake in any sort of reward structure that we want. It would be unwise to bake in a reward structure that says, I want you to be a kamikaze pilot all the time, right? If that were the case, I'd call it a missile and we don't need any AI into it. Like, just go hit the thing. Right. Right. And in that case, I got a skinny AI wingman on my wing that actually has a really crappy AI in it that pretty much just pure pursuits the thing until it hits it. So you go, well, yeah, we've already got those, right? They're called missiles. So, how can I have something that does have a sense of its own risk? You know, I'd encourage you to think how would you use a wingman that you're able to modulate that risk based on the context of the environment? Because you might have an unmanned wingman that you're willing to let do some of those high aspect passes if the conditions are right. So if it's a really bad situation, you're like, we got to get out of this. And I know this AI wingman could do that, but there's a high risk it might hit itself. Maybe I have a feature that says, hey, I'm going to modulate your risk acceptance in this particular instance. And if you communicate to it, now you know, well, it's going to go try and take this shot because we need to end this right now. We can't do multiple circles, you know, the moth to a flame kind of thing that that happens with this. And so that idea that you're going to modulate that I think is something that really enhances the decision process in any fight, whether it's within visual range or not.
0: Very interesting. All right. Back to listener questions. Jim Gundog says he's interested in hearing about air and ground-based laser systems to defeat slash burnout slash destroy adversary radar and warning and satellite systems. But I don't know, you punted before on my 747 laser. So can you talk on this one? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the big picture is is that when you think about the high-energy laser systems, they can be used for a variety of different things. Most of their application in the past was tied to airborne laser types of things. And when you look at that implementation, it's a long-range shot where you have to deal with the very complicated atmospheric effects. The um, astronomy world, astrophysics and astronomers have a lot of experience with this, and it's normally not good. The fact that the high-energy laser guys have problems with it, too, is also not surprising. But there are hands full of elements of if I can deposit energy on something that can create effects for me, then you bet we're always interested in being able to do those sorts of things. Most of the kind of uh, open dialogue on this is either these really long range shots, which are remarkably complicated from an optics and just um, propagation types of challenges. And then you also see ones that are essentially kind of tuned for self-defense type of deal. And when you look at, like, let's say you've got an incoming bad guy missile and he's coming toward me, just like I said, that skinny wingman that's a kamikaze pure pursuit thing, the front of the missile is what's pointed at me, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the front of the missile is intended to be able to handle all the heating that's associated with it going mock, whatever, to get to you. And so if I'm going to try and light it up with a laser, it seems like a really lousy spot to shoot it at, right? (laughs) Like that's exactly where it's reinforced. I anticipate that these high energy laser systems are going to be a lot better when they have a entry from a different perspective, but that doesn't lend themselves well to a single ship trying to defend itself against these sorts of things, right? So if you kind of imagine this is where this cooperative stuff that I'm talking about for the dog fighting really kind of comes into play is now, once I'm thinking about this as a team and I have a teamwork thing going on now, are there advantageous positions that I can get into or are there advantageous strategies or tactical formations that will enable some of these sorts of engagements to happen in the future, right? And the answer is, is that, I don't know, but you know, you'd have to kind of get behind the door to see a little bit more what we think here at DARPA is within the realm of the possible.
0: Okay. Jared wants to know, how does industry, DARPA, and other internal agencies like Big Safari and DIA work together to create a platform like the F-22? And I think we've talked about this, but first off, Big Safari, should I be familiar with that term?
1: Uh, You can go Google it. They're an interesting test organization that they like to stay rather quiet on. So I won't betray that trust and talk much (laughs) about it. I think when it comes down to it, a lot of our discussion earlier about yeah. how do you get a new platform, you know, the way DARPA works is we say we got a problem, we try and attack and look for opportunities to make that problem, solve that problem. And when we start getting a technology that seems like it's working, then we start having uh, much more tightly coupled conversations with our, what we call our transition partner or someone in the Department of Defense who this problem is maybe uniquely suited uh, or they're dealing with. And now we have a potential opportunity for them. We work the handoff from this kind of R&D type of space into more traditional acquisitions program, just because there are a lot of shortcuts I get to take on my R&D effort that you really can't get away with when you're in sustainment for uh, any particular system. So once we start getting serious about a technology, that's where the rubber hits the road. And you need to partner with outfits, entities that will kind of maybe take it across that middle ground and get some more data that's necessary to support whether it should go into full rate production.
0: Okay. And the last question is from Andrew McDonald, who wants to know, how did you end up at DARPA? Now, you already told us that, yeah. Animal, so why don't we ask instead, what are you going to do after DARPA? Because uh, you said you're transferring this
1: month. You rock the boat enough, they eventually throw you out into the water. <laughs> so I'm going back to Big Blue. I'm going to take command of a operational test outfit called the uh, Air Force Operational Test Evaluation Center Detachment 6 which is at Nellis Air Force Base. So for me, I get a chance to kind of go back into the test world. I get to go back to flying, which is certainly something that will be good for a variety of reasons. You know, I'm a pilot. This flying and desk stuff, it does get old after a while. And it's also uh, just an opportunity to kind of go back into the Air Force and, you know, influence on the more leadership type of role, right? Uh, And and I'm certainly looking forward to that.
0: What will you be flying?
1: Uh, F-35s.
0: Awesome. All of them or just the Air Force ones?
1: <laughs> just the Air Force ones, I think. Okay. Um, have
0: you flown that already as part of your TPS? Uh, no,
1: I, I haven't. In fact, that's, um, huh. you know, as test pilots, we get a chance to fly quite a few different things. Most guys list a, a long list of them that I really don't count anything that I don't have a formate in. Formate's the Air Force term for a check ride. Okay. If you didn't get a check ride in it, then yeah, you kind of flew it, but. Okay.
0: Uh, quite, so. We'd call that like a natop squall, I guess, in the navy. Yeah, so. exactly.
1: So all right. So no, I I haven't flown the F thirty five yet, so it'll be a nice experience. I'll have yeah. to try and make sure that I don't um, take any baggage with me because I was a <laughs> two <F-32> guy before.
0: <laughs> all right. What about after that? You're gonna keep playing the game or uh, stars possibly in your future? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you don't. I had a, an article with the Economist where they there's a great last line in there. You can kind of imagine when you kind of poke the bear or the machine in the chest enough times, they pretty much show you the door, which is kind of what's happening already. The Air Force has these officers that they call high performing officers or high potential officers, HPOs. Mm -hmm. I'm not an HPO kind of guy. I'm an LPO kind of guy. (laughs) So yeah, they've kind of effectively showed me the door before I'm taking this sunset tour as really an opportunity to make a difference before I exit the Air Force and kind of figure out what I want to be when I grow up.
0: Well, let's keep in touch because if you don't have any other bright ideas, and I'm sure you will, but you should start a podcast because you've got a wealth of information and people <laughs> eat this stuff that. up. Well, I promise you, they're going to love all of our discussion today. So uh, this has been a lot of fun, Animal. All right. So you talked about poking the bear. How did someone come up with Animal for Dan Divorsik?
1: <laughs> the best answer for that is done over an adult beverage without ah, yes. audio rolling. You know, Like all of us, you don't get your call sign for something that's flattering. That's right. Contrary to what my mom thinks. But yeah, I think if your listeners are old enough to know who the Muppets are, um, I'm pretty much named after the crazy Muppet. And uh, I'd like to say in environments like this, that it's because of, I'm such a great pilot that I was an animal out there, uh, <laughs> uh mopping up on bad guys. The real answer is just a lot less flattering and uh, yes. involves, would, would involve some booze. So are you a drummer? I'm not. No, oh, uh, come on! animal was a
0: drummer. So I, right. he
1: was, he was. I need to take it up. My grandpa was, but no. There
0: you yet. go. Well, you still have time. Well, oh, That's awesome, Animal. So uh, let's see. I forgot to ask you at the beginning, how many hours and uh, how many years of service so far?
1: I'm at 22 years right now. I've got just under 1,900 hours. I mean, you know, one okay. of the things that happens when you go into test is that yeah. you don't crank out the hours as much. The stuff I had the opportunity to fly and do is uh, remarkably rewarding, right? Yeah, so I'll, for I'll sure. I'll the hours for the quality time any day.
0: Well, you are an amazing man, uh, Animal. Appreciate your 22 years of service to our country and everything else you've been doing and 1,900 flight hours, and you're going to go get a couple hundred more in the F-35. So do us a favor and keep in touch because I think people are really going to enjoy our discussion from today.
1: (laughs) You bet. And if ever you want to go down some of these uh, weird rabbit holes or if you find that your listeners want to talk about... The psychology of all this, there's some, just some fascinating stuff to go into. So I'd be happy to chat with you again. But Jello, thanks for inviting me on and uh, look forward to, uh, to the next time we talk. For sure. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care.
0: Well, welcome back, everyone. Big thanks again to Animal and everyone at DARPA who made this interview possible. Now, Cinco, I must confess, there are two times in my life I have punched above my weight class. The first was when I met my wife, and the second was this interview. I mean, Animal was incredibly well-spoken, informed, wise, educated. Golly, I can't stop with the accolades.
3: Well, of course, you also mean when you spoke with me, Jello, right? (laughs)
0: Naturally. That's why
3: now, your back is... Clearly, man. So I know Animal. Oh. Animal is a legend in the test pilot community. Okay. Just for instance, while he was going through test pilot school, you know, one of the most demanding intense aviation experiences and schooling experiences in like the entire world, mm-hmm. he would fly to Purdue on weekends to advise graduate students because he had a PhD from Purdue. And that's on top of him winning like every award at test pilot school. So oh, beyond his brilliant mind, which was... Dude, full display there. He is a very well-respected pilot, a member of our community. And you know when folks give you advice like, hey, don't walk into a room and think you're the smartest guy in the room? Well, they're talking about walking into a room where Animal is in the room, right? Like he is the smartest guy in the room. So it was really great to hear uh, your guys' conversation.
0: Well, that was certainly true when we recorded. I wish I could have done it in person. But as I listened to that again to prepare for this discussion with you, I was just amazed by so much and mystified from it. And again, he's way above my weight class. So I don't know. That's why I need your help here. What are some of the topics that really stood out to you that we want to drill down maybe a little more on?
3: Dude, where do I even start? The list was long in my mind. I mean, just starting off with the really cool history of DARPA and how important DARPA is. And it was good to hear, but it's a little sad that like DARPA is also like struggling to make sure it doesn't become part of the problem, right? Become part of the bureaucracy. So it's good to hear that they're struggling with that. I think that is much better than being naive or ignorant to it. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that the whole idea, the conversation about the reluctance to adopt disruptive tech by the user base? Dude, yes, absolutely. I mean, that is a huge problem for our society, for our military, and for aviators in particular. I'm happy to go into it, but man, I will tell you the challenges of us as test pods trying to get the aviation community to adopt autonomous collision avoidance technology is really a great example of how just difficult that is. So that really hit home for me.
0: Well, and that was the part that made me think of you, truthfully, as much of a supporter as you've been of the show anyway. Thank you. I thought, well, you're the guy who needs to come back and talk about this because didn't you face some of that adversity in the auto GCAS? And can you explain a little bit more of that for those who might've forgotten?
3: I'll say, and this is probably a conversation for another time, but I've ejected out of an aircraft because I had a midair collision. Dude, it was intense and crazy. And serendipity was at play because a few years later, I'm like the first pilot to be flying with a team of folks out at TestPod School to be flying the first ever automatic air collision avoidance technology, the system that aircraft know they're going to collide and they take control away from the pilot. That introduced me to the ground collision avoidance team that was doing amazing work. And it's all this stair step. And what I realized was when I would talk to pilots, funny enough, and it's crazy now that I say it kind of out loud, when I would talk to pilots, about like, you need this technology because it's going to save lives. They are not that receptive to it. If you say, dude, do you need this technology because... It's going to save lives, but it's also going to help you with combat. Like they are all on board. And as an example, like automatic air collision avoidance, trying to sell that is hard because pilots are like, no, I'm in control of my own plane and I don't want a system to take over. And they kind of do the chest beating a little bit. But if I were to go to them and say, listen, man, do you want swarm technology? Do you want a capability to have like this awesome combat power at your fingertips when you're flying around with like UAVs on your wing? Like you need automatic air collision avoidance for that. They're like totally on board. So it's funny the way that aviators have kind of approached some of this life-saving technology, but it does have this other capability that we need to make sure we're talking
0: about. Well, do you think it is aviators or is that just a microcosm of humans in general? Aren't we all resistant to change?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a really good point. I feel like individuals in a lot of different career fields... They get ingrained in the way things are, the way things should be in their mind, and they don't recognize the value and importance of technology. And, and aviation is just one of those microcosms, like you said, that kind of highlights that intolerance to change.
0: Well, how about the AI piece? Now, we didn't really drill down on the air combat eval thing that they did too much, because I think people remember when that came out. And with the AI stuff, are you doing something parallel to that or something totally different? I mean, I'm doing something...
3: Like similar in the sense that we're trying to solve Air Force and Space Force problems using AI in partnership with MIT. Everything we're doing here is unclassified. It's all like quote unquote for the public good. Okay. So all of our algorithms that we're developing are meant to be used for many different applications. We do have some of our programs where we're trying to enhance the pilot's awareness, pilot performance, using AI, you know, via sensors, recognizing when a pilot may be needing a nudge in certain areas. So We have been working on things like that. We're trying to enhance pilot training using AI. Once again, cognitive performance, queuing instructors into where their students are possibly, for instance, looking. Like, hey, man, this student pilot is now looking way too much at their attitude indicator. Right, Their cross-check is lacking. Encourage them to look outside or to look at other sensors. So, yeah, we have a number of projects. In general, though, AI... Is really ubiquitous, right? It's gonna be in everything. And now yeah. like the big opportunities that we see it in aviation is this autonomous system. And really the one thing that I think is important that Animal mentioned was just the human machine teaming. Like it is all about the human using and working with these type of systems, not against these type of systems.
0: And that stood out to me as well, not human versus machine, but human and machine versus whatever. So yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. And boy. I don't remember if he said he had a PhD. That makes sense what you just said because, wow, what a well-spoken, just amazingly wise individual. I really do think he should start a podcast. He actually responded to me later on email. I was like, yeah, you know, maybe someday down the road or something, but he could have one of these, you know, black diamond type discussions where cutting edge stuff like this would be amazing. Now, there is a show, interestingly, called Voices from DARPA which offers revealing an informative window on the minds of the agency's program managers. I don't know if you're aware of that, Cinco, but they share rather some of the institutional know-how and vision and process and history that together makes that, quote, secret sauce that DARPA has been adding to the nation's innovation ecosystem for about 60 years now. But man, just overall, such an amazing topic. And this is what's great about having a podcast is not only to kind of show off having such a smart guy like Animal and you on there, but just to be able to learn from it too. It's just really incredible. Any final thoughts or any other, you said you had pages of notes. Any other thoughts on today's interview?
3: Yeah. You know, along the same lines as we just talked about, you know, human machine teaming, I'd love to kind of leave your listeners with this thought. When Lee Sedol played AlphaGo in the game of Go, so AlphaGo is like an AI powered system that beat him. Wow. The key piece of it was Move 37 in one of the games. And it was kind of this renowned moment where AlphaGo made this move that everyone thought at the moment was a mistake, but then looking back, realized it was this brilliant, like literally game-changing move that is transforming the way Go players are thinking about playing the game. And that is where this type of technology, AI-powered technology, can really... Change the way we think about using technology, think about like the battle space, how we interact with other platforms, with ground troops, with the systems in order to kind of reimagine, uh, shift our paradigm on the battle space. So I'll leave you with that, man. But it was so great to listen to the interview, to be able to chat with you today about this and just really exciting stuff.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, it's good to have you back, Cinco. It's been too long. We need to do it more often. Real quick before we let you go, any Big changes coming up for you? Are you going to be there for a while more or what's going on in your world? No,
3: man, hanging out at MIT. It's like the best job in the world. Now I'll be here until the summer of 22, until my next position. But yeah, man, onward. It's been great being here and we look forward to continuing our life here in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: All right. In that case, we can begin to wrap this up, and with all due apologies to our listener Alex in Germany, based on his earlier question, I do want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Cinco, thanks for returning to the show today to help us better understand the topic. That was really awesome. Thanks, Sheila. Okay. Well, that'll do it for this episode then, but we'll be back in 10 days for a Warbird episode on the Avro Lancaster that you won't want to miss. Until then, be well. We'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.